I have wrestled with the preparation for this sermon more than just about any other sermon in the short time that I've been here since January. As I came to Psalm 4, I couldn't help shake, or I couldn't shake the reality that God in his goodness led us to this psalm at this moment in our nation's history. So how's that for an introduction? The psalm confronts us with a vitally important question in verse 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Literally, who or what has the ability to cause us to see and experience what is truly good? That's the question. Let's press into that question a little more exploring this psalm and ask this same question that David says many are asking in his day and time. And at the root of this question are three fundamental worldview-shaping questions. What, where, and who? What is truly good in a broken world? Where does this true good come from? And finally, who receives this true good? So let's ask these questions together of our psalm. First, what is truly good in a broken world? Every politician has an answer to that question. Every commercial you watch has an answer to that question. Every TV show you consume Every movie you watch, every song you listen to, every article you peruse, every book you read, all of them have been shaped by an idea of what is truly good. And in turn, they try to shape us towards that version of the good. At Sojourn, We believe, without apology, that discipleship is the main thing of the church. We exist to worship God and make disciples. And when we say the word discipleship, you ought to think spiritual formation. Without apology, the church exists to spiritually form human beings. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14 is very clear on that. And so sojourn exists to form your being, your thinking, your feeling, your worshiping, your talking with Christ-likeness being the goal. And in our current cultural moment, we as a church want to spiritually form one another to think Christianly about life. So I'm going to use an illustration here for the purpose of spiritual formation, not division. So let's see how this question of what is truly good in a broken world, let's see how that question is playing out in our current cultural moment. Let me suggest that the passions we see on either side in response to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, are simply the result of clashing definitions. 
definitions of what is truly good in a broken world. On the one hand, some argue that true goodness equals absolute individual autonomy. The absolute freedom to rule one's body, to make one's own choices as if on an island by oneself. And the argument goes something like this. For a woman to be genuinely equal to a man, free to advance in any way that she desires, unencumbered in every way a man would be, then she needs the freedom to terminate the normal, natural consequence of sexual activity. She needs the freedom to abort a child, a child who is the direct and normal result of sexual union. She needs the freedom to overrule God's normal intention for sexual expression between a man and a woman. Her rights overrule her responsibilities. The reasoning goes something like this, at least in part. A man can choose to abandon the natural consequence of sexual expression. Tragically, he can walk away from the consequences of his own sexual freedom without owning his responsibility and without any additional convenience upon his life or upon his body. That fact alone, that men would indeed walk away from his own child, that a man would do that, is by itself evidence of the brokenness of our world. But in our culture's mindset, the mother has the inconvenient responsibility to care for a baby nine months later if we don't give her access to abort the child. So what is at stake in this is nothing short of a competing vision of what is good in a broken world. We could simply say what is at stake is a moral vision. Now, our culture, and don't believe the lie, our culture has wanted to make this about politics or about health care or individual freedoms and rights. This argument is primarily a vision of what is truly good, though. Good for humanity, good for society, and a vision for what is good for the individuals involved, including the mother, the father, and the child. What is at stake is what it means for humanity to flourish. And this competing vision of what is good equally applies to the man's decision to walk away or stay and to live up to his responsibility. He also has to deal with the desire for autonomy. And the scriptures call each one of us, every single one of us, equally to repent of our autonomy and to submit to the lordship of Jesus. But let's go even a step further. Even the emotional sub-arguments for abortion deal with some version of goodness set squarely in the brokenness of our world. 
It's not just a matter of what is good and true, but what is good and true in the midst of brokenness. Before we go on, Christopher, could you switch? Check. We good? Can you hear me in the back? Okay. Just so there's not any distraction, our mic's been having issues. So the emotional sub-arguments for abortion deal with some version of goodness set in the midst of brokenness. For example, what about abortion in the case of the brokenness of rape or incest? What is truly good in this circumstance? So as a church, as a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing, Jesus-exalting, God-loving church, can we acknowledge we cannot be idealistic in this discussion. We live in a broken world and we're talking about terrible, tragic brokenness. Circumstances like these are truly horrific and devastatingly broken. On the one hand, this argument for abortion is a powerful emotional argument. But at the bottom, it's an argument not about emotion, but about justice. And this is the question. Will we make the child pay for the crime of the father in the case of rape or incest? Justice says the man should pay for his crime. Absolutely. Without any qualification. Justice says the mother ought to be cared for and loved. She should not become an honor or an object of shame or dishonor without qualification. And it's interesting to note there is incest in the family of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Judah had relations with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. And through her children, our Lord Jesus Christ was descended. So the woman should never become an object of shame or dishonor. So does justice also say that it is good, it is morally right that the baby pay with his or her life for the crime of the father? But while circumstances like these are certainly real and we cannot be idealistic, what you won't hear is that the numbers of women who have abortions due to rape or incest are shockingly low. Just one example. Every year in Florida, they record every single abortion with the reason given. In 2022, 2021 rather, in Florida, there were 79,000 817 abortions that took place in that state. That's more than the population of Metro Chattanooga. The combined total of abortions due to rape or incest, 126.15%. But this is an inconvenient truth if autonomy is to be our God. Our justifiable anger at the circumstances of cases like this ought not, not, ought not to be used to cloud the nature of the issue, true justice. So let's take this one step further. 
what is truly good in the brokenness of a mother's life being in danger due to pregnancy. Abortions sometimes happen due to life-threatening complications, either on the part of the mother or the part of the child. How often is that the case? Well, let's use Florida as an example again. Out of almost 80,000 abortions, 119 were due to the mother or the child facing a life-threatening situation. Point one five percent. But let's take the question a step farther. What is truly good in the midst of the brokenness of serious fetal genetic defects, deformities, or abnormalities? Is the good to eliminate the child so he or she or the family or society doesn't have to deal with that kind of brokenness? Or is the good to treasure that broken little boy or girl as a human being made in God's image? These are the questions our culture needs to face up to and our culture will be facing up to as individual states now have the opportunity to make these arguments. By the way, in that same Florida report, 757 of the almost 80,000 abortions, that's not even a full 1%, were for serious genetic defects, deformities, or abnormalities. So if you're keeping tabs, that's less than 1.3% of abortions in the state of Florida had to do with the reasons you typically hear for why abortion must be legal. Friends, we must acknowledge there is brokenness in our world. And as Christians, we need to remember that much of what is broken will not be fixed until Jesus returns. And we ought to give our time to addressing issues of public justice. But as Christians, we of all people need to be abundantly clear and convictional. On this point, the desire of the Creator who gives life is not to destroy human lives. It is the desire of our enemy, Satan, to destroy human lives. He is the one who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, the scriptures tell us. So Christians, our Lord Jesus is the creator, giver, and sustainer of life. So who are we as humans to say, no thank you? on behalf of any one of his created beings. But as a country, we have implicitly done that 62 million times since 1973. We have killed off the population of Chattanooga 110 times since 1970. So is Psalm 4 pertinent for us 
today? Who will show us what is good? Who or what has the power to cause us to experience what is truly good? Notice the psalmist has an answer. The idea of good or goodness entails generosity. As one man says, doing good suggests kindness, doing good to someone. So what is it to experience true goodness, true kindness in this sense, according to David? True good, first of all, is experiencing the gracious love of God. Look at Psalm 4, verse 3. The psalmist says, you can be sure of this, the Lord shows the godly special favor. Now, the word for godly there, or faithful ones, it comes from the root word meaning steadfast love. So, the godly ones are those whom God has shown his steadfast, loyal love. So, true good in a broken world is to experience the gracious love of God. And love is sacrificial, often painfully so. Back in verse 1, David prays that God would have compassion on him. Ironically, for our cultural moment, the word is used in Scripture to describe the yearning of a mother for her child. That word compassion describes a vibrant, intense, emotional care and concern for another. The sort of love that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. To experience true goodness in a broken world is to experience the fatherly love and care of God, the compassion of God upon you through a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And then to be so utterly transformed by that love that we shower it upon others. David prays that he would experience God's grace in verse 1. Now, grace throughout the Bible is God's undeserved, unmerited goodness. And you can experience the true good of God's gracious love in the midst of a broken world. And this grace comes in so many different forms. But it only comes through one source, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christian, we're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit, but do you realize that you have been shown the gracious love of God so that you might shower this same gracious love, this sacrificial, self-denying, undeserved love upon others. So Christians, at this point in American history, will we show up? Will we show up to care and support moms with unwanted pregnancies? Will we lay down our moral scorecards so that we might simply love the fatherless and the widow and the unsupported moms? Will you, as a believer, work in your community, in your city, in your state for a just society where every human life is deemed precious from the womb to the tomb? and every stage in between. 
Second, true good is experiencing well-being from God. Notice the conclusion of David's psalm, verse 7. You make me happier than those who have abundant grain and wine. I will lie down and sleep peacefully for you, Lord, make me safe and secure. Now, notice for David that true well-being doesn't consist solely in prosperity, which is what our culture would have us believe. The drive for the American dream is alive and well in places like Chattanooga. Just look at the housing market. But for David, true happiness, true goodness, encompasses a fully-orbed idea of well-being. The word translated here, peace, is the Hebrew word you have heard undoubtedly before, the word shalom. At one level, it communicates freedom from war, safety, friendship, blessing, prosperity. But when it comes to the people of God, it communicates a relationship of love and loyalty with God and with others. That's what it is to experience shalom. So true good for you and for every other human being is to experience this relationship of love and loyalty with God. This is true well-being. So question number one, what is truly good in a broken world? Question number two, where does this true good come from? Let's return to verse six together. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Now, this is the third time in this psalm we are confronted with a question. And details like that are important as you read the psalms on your own. Where are the first two questions in this psalm? Well, they come in the same verse, verse 2. David is speaking and he asks... How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? So question, what does David mean by saying, you turn my glory into shame? Well, David's glory is Yahweh, the God who anointed him, who delivers him, who always keeps his promises. But for those surrounding David, that was ridiculous. Having Yahweh as God wasn't something to rejoice in. It was shameful. You can almost hear them taunting in the background to this psalm. David, get with the modern program. Yahweh was so last century. There are new gods on the block. All the cool people are finding their deliverance and their salvation in them. So what on earth are you doing as a king worshiping an ancient relic of a God who no longer has the power to save you? Don't you know humanity is always progressing? You have to be willing to move past what worked for your ancestors or your parents and embrace what works for you. But stop embarrassing yourself by clinging to that Yahweh fellow. Culture cultural charges of shame haven't changed much, have they? Christian, who on earth are you worshiping? 
Don't you know that autonomy, complete freedom from authority is the God you ought to worship? Man, you're such an embarrassment to society. It is shameful that you would link yourself to such an outdated, old-fashioned picture of religion by worshiping the God of the Bible. Get with modernity, man. You get to choose your own truth, your own goodness. You get to shape and fashion it in your likeness according to your circumstances. Now there's one main problem with the perspective of David's friends and our own culture. They have embraced a lie. They have, in the words of Alec Motier, devoted their lives and energies to something that cannot ultimately provide what it promises. They have embraced, literally, vanity or worthlessness. The NIV translates this idea, false gods. It's a pretty good translation. It was that famous runaway prophet, Jonah, who said, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. So true good does not come from idolatry. It does not come from idol worship. Idols can never show us what is truly good. So let's ask this question. While we don't have stone idols that we worship today, or wooden relics that we bow down before, in our culture, in what ways have you been shaped? More by the cultural air that you breathe than the biblical account of reality when it comes to asking in whom or what is true goodness found? Are there worthless idols we are clinging to informed by our culture that is causing us to turn away from the reality of God's love for us? In what ways and spaces have you been taken in by the lies of your culture and begun to breathe the carbon monoxide of absolute autonomy or of materialism, of secularism, of consumerism, of Christian nationalism, and we could spend the next 10 minutes listing off isms. But for let's just a moment, let's take the idol of autonomy. And if I may, let me reference once more our polarizing issue at hand. In January of 2013, Mary Elizabeth Williams wrote an article in Salon Magazine. That article was entitled, So What? if abortion ends life. And so we know where she was coming from. She says explicitly, throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in the belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. But she continues. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That's a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss. Her life, 
what is right for her circumstances and her health should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her. Always. Do you see what's happening in that paragraph? Goodness and truth are not fixed realities. The mother gets to determine what is good and true for her because she must have the freedom to be autonomous. And because the child is not autonomous, he or she does not matter. What is right for her should trump the rights of the most, va most vulnerable human being imaginable every single time. Mary Elizabeth Williams and many who would follow this train of thought have turned to the false god of autonomy to find what is good. Friends, this is what godlessness does. It convinces us one step at a time to move further and further towards evil. How did this work out? Well, first, selected abortions were okay if the child was a result of rape or incest or had genetic defects or if a mother's life was in danger. Next, abortions early in the pregnancy were okay because the fetus wasn't yet a human being. And now, it doesn't really matter if this is truly taking a human life or not. Abortion is okay simply because I am the boss. This is the autonomy as God ethic of life. There is no external standard of what is morally good and therefore true and beautiful. Autonomy is itself the highest ideal. But where does this logic lead to? And I am not over-sensationalizing this. There is a law right now. You can read the text of it online. I can give you the website that has been put forward in the state of California. A bill which has not yet been enacted, but a bill that's been put forward that would make it legal to take the life of a newborn up to one month after birth with no fear of criminal liability. And this is why, and this is the same logic that turns up in the state of Florida in 2021, where 74.9% of abortions were purely elective. The mother simply chose to. And in the minds of these precious mothers who are themselves image bearers of God, the goodness of a beautiful baby boy or girl couldn't compare to the goodness of eliminating that child from her life. This is the end result of every worship of false gods. It does not lead to life. It leads to death. It leads to destruction. It leads to darkness and ruin, not human flourishing. So how long will we, and by we I mean me, and by we I mean you, 
and our culture, how long will we love false gods like autonomy and turn away to delusions to make life work? Now here's the reality. I can see it in your faces. We are heavy this morning. We are weighed down. This is not pleasant. And it's no wonder that when facing the full weight of the idolatry of the culture around him, where does David turn? Look at the end of verse 6. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. We're familiar with describing people's countenance in terms of light and darkness, aren't we? When I tell people about how I first met Elizabeth, I might describe how her face was beaming or how it shone with joy. Or conversely, when we discuss someone's angry response, response we might say that his face darkened. One's countenance tells us a lot about what someone is thinking or feeling. And the face of God shining upon us is a picture of favor and blessing. It is essentially the smile of God. Friends, the only one who can show us true good, true truth, is God himself. Our culture is incapable of it. Because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And let's be honest, at one time that described every single one of us. False gods can only imitate or pervert goodness. God alone is the source. So what is truly good? Who can show us what is truly good? Finally, who receives this true good? In short, the answer to that is the godly. For David, it meant that he was the one anointed, chosen by God to lead his people. And for the nation of Israel, as long as they followed the anointed of God, they would be blessed by God, receiving the goodness of God. But today... The godly are set apart through the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David, the ultimate covenant king. Jesus is the beloved son of God and those who seek refuge in him, according to Psalm 2 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, they are blessed and they find themselves represented within the beloved of God. We are not godly in ourselves. And if you believe that, then you have also believed a lie. We are not godly in and of ourselves. We are godly, beloved of God, because of Jesus, the godly one, the righteous one. So who experiences the goodness of God for all of eternity? Those who submit to the Father by submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. All those who repent of idolatry, who turn from worthless idols. Well, if that's not distracting. 
Sorry, that completely threw me off. Let's ask that question again. So who experiences the goodness of God for all of eternity? Those who submit to the Father by submitting to the Lordship of Jesus. Those who lay down their idol worship, who lay all claim to autonomy at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator, the giver, and the sustainer of life. So can we make this really personal? Do you want to experience true goodness? The well-being of being rightly related to God? Then look to Jesus, for he alone is full of grace and truth. He alone is the basis for a relationship of love and loyalty with God, a relationship that once begun will not end. And you may be sitting here this morning feeling shame and guilt for a hidden past that involves any number of shameful acts. Perhaps you yourself have had an abortion or you have encouraged someone to have an abortion. For a moment, would you just hear the heart of this church clearly, which is the heart of Jesus for you. We love you and we are so glad you are here. And more than that, there is comfort for you today in Jesus. God's offer of forgiveness in Christ is wide open to you. Jesus bids you to come to him and experience the blessedness of repentance and faith. This is the scandal of grace. That broken, sinful people who have done atrocious things get to experience true goodness, real forgiveness. Because Jesus Christ laid down his life for broken people. Come frozen with shame. Come burning with guilt. My Jesus loves you still. Who will cause us to experience what is good? God. God alone. He gives goodness to those who have submitted to his son. So claim it, embrace it, enjoy it, revel in it. Don't give in to the lies of this world. Don't be shamed for being a worshiper of the giver and sustainer of life. Live in these truths like the adopted son or daughter that you are, for you have come to know the one who alone can make you experience true goodness. Let's pray together. Father, make us to know in your grace your fatherly care for us. Lord Jesus, may those who have not yet submitted to your lordship see the beauty of your worth in the eternal and imminent danger of worshiping false gods. 
Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Jesus as the fountain of all goodness and truth. Triune God, change us from the inside out so that we shower upon others the same sacrificial, life-giving love that you have showered upon us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.